You may all be seated. It's good to be back. Good to see all of you. Really is. We missed you. Uh, the uh, weather in Florida was historically hot. The weather up here was almost historically hot. So it was a hot time everywhere. But we had a good time. Aussie behaved more than usual. So I was able to get a little rest. <laughs> no, we we had a great time. And I uh, want to thank the staff and the guys that spoke. Just really, uh, really good to be able to be down there and relax and know that everything was handled here. We've had some visitors this morning. Uh, one gentleman from... Uh, North Carolina, and uh, I always admire these folks. I told him who are far away from home, but when it comes to Sunday, they break out of their hotel or whatever it is, and they come to church. That's good. That's really good. Well, we return to John chapter 11 today. It's been three weeks since we've been there. We're going to overlap a little bit. Let's, let's read. And a certain man was sick. Lazarus of Bethany. He was of the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Were we able to get up that map, Don? I don't know whether we were. Anyway, we'll move on. And yeah, there we are reminded. Do you see the uh, Dead Sea up there? The Dead Sea is south. A little bit north is Jerusalem, and then you come across the Jordan River, and that's where Jesus is as this narrative unfolds. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment. That was a well, by this time in early Christian history, this well-known story. She was the one who wiped his feet with her hair and whose brother Lazarus was sick. At this point, he was just sick. And the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one whom you love. There was an intimate relationship in this family in the Lord. The one whom you love is sick. This is not the flu. But when Jesus, but when Jesus heard it, odd, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified by it. That's for his disciples and that's for history. Now, this is emphasized, as we told you three weeks ago. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When therefore he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's really odd that we pointed out to you. After then, after this, he said to his disciples, waited a while, said, let us go to Judea. Again, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going to go there again to walk into the mouth of a lion? 
Jesus answered in a parable, Are there not twelve hours in the day? The Jews divided the day into two twelve-hour periods. If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because it didn't have street lights in those days. He stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, I've got writing all over my text. I've got new glasses, but they're not helping at this point. Our friend Lazarus is dead. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. That's a euphemism for dead, as in D-E-A-D. But I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. They're not getting this. The disciples therefore said to him, they're a little bit dense. Lord, if he's fallen asleep, it's okay. Let him sleep it off. He'll be all right. He will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. Then Jesus, therefore, said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. Thomas, therefore, who is called Didymus, the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Okay, he insists on going. This is going to be bad, but we're dedicated, so let's go and die with him because that's what's going to happen. <laughs> that was Thomas, always true to his personality. So when Jesus came, he found that they, he had already been in the tomb four days. I mean, this is time when rot sets in. We'll stop right there. It so happened as we review that Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, he had come down with some unspecified illness that threatened his life. That's when they got the news. And it was nothing that was in the reach of traditional Jewish medicine. The family knew from experience that Jesus could heal Lazarus if only they could get word to him. They knew where he was. So they send out what we would call an SOS. They knew that Jesus had recently retired from Jerusalem, as I showed you on that map, and he had retired from the district of Judea to a wilderness area on the east bank of the Jordan River. When the message about Lazarus' desperate illness reached Jesus, the Savior curiously made absolutely no haste to rush to Lazarus' side, as we might have expected. Jesus told his disciples, because they all got the message, that this illness is a divine platform for the glory of God. Well, then there was a group relief. 
No need to put themselves in harm's way to get back to Lazarus there in Bethany, which was really close to Jerusalem, been there. He's going to be fine. So we can chill out. The Jews, as you recall, and then maybe you weren't here and don't recall, maybe you don't know the story. The Jews had taken great umbrage earlier at Jesus' teaching, which, in which he implied in code that he was the Son of God. Man, were they mad. They were ticked off up to the gills. And though they weren't supposed to put anybody to death, they didn't care at this point. They wanted to rub Jesus out. So his disciples knew that it could be fatal for Jesus to go back there and put him and them in harm's way. So they were uh, a little bit scared. You're surely not going to go back there again. I mean, we just, we just got out of there by the skin of our teeth. And you're going to go back and face those animals? Well, at the same time, there was disappointment back in Bethany. Bethany's where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived. Just about a mile, 0.7, over the hill of Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. So all the bad guys were still in the territory and some of them were still hanging around Mary and Martha who must have been rather distinguished people. In their despair, Mary and Martha had expected Jesus given their close relationship to him. They expected, as you might have expected from your pastor or somebody, to waste no time in coming to their rescue. Then after they wait a couple more days or wait there a couple more days, there's a unexpected reversal. Jesus just bides his time. And then he says, okay, man, let's break camp. We're headed back for Bethany. Where did you say Bethany? To the place where everybody is waiting to kill me and probably you as well. For two days, Jesus didn't budge. During that time, his friend Lazarus actually physically dies. The disciples were not happy campers. They reminded Jesus of the threat, the peril of going back there. They would all be in harm's way. Why would he want to tease the dog? Well, then Jesus gives them this explanatory parable. The essence is carpe diem, a Latin phrase that many of you probably already know. Seize the day. Seize the moment of opportunity. In our case, when God gives us an opportunity, seize the moment, metaphorically, the day, not the darkness. Be fearless and let God handle all the perils and obstacles in your way. Go for it. If you stall around in fear of and anxiety and inadequacy, you've waited too late. That advice is for us all. Let me elaborate. 
in his answer to his dumbfounded disciples, Jesus uses a parable from the natural world. He lets them in on a safety secret that accounts for his complete sense of security in walking again into the mouth of the lion, so to speak. So, ahead of Jesus, as we've already said, was great peril. This relates to your Monday morning, so follow me. His disciples were back there still foaming at the mouth and gnashing at the teeth at the very thought of him. Yet here's the Savior ready to make another foray into their jurisdiction, much to the chagrin of his uneasy disciples. Neither their threatenings nor their intrigues cowed or intimidated him in the least. All his moves, we'll bring it down to your Monday morning, listen carefully, all his moves were choreographed by the Spirit of God. As the Father spoke through his Spirit, he spoke, Jesus. If the Father led him to take a low profile, as he just had, he moved out of the limelight. If the Father prompted him through the Spirit to fly in the face of danger, he went forth boldly to face his enemies. Question, what is the source of such security, such confidence, stitch, such steadiness in the face of jeopardy? That's a question we need to ask ourselves because, boy, it comes to us. Ever the mentor, Jesus seizes the day. He never loses an occasion to get his disciples, and you're one of them, to get us up to speed and on his page. Prompted by their surprise at his abrupt change of course and his intention to return to the district of Judah, Jesus shares his safety secret and yours and mine. The source of his serenity and security when hell and all of its minions were massing its hostile forces against him, that day's going to come in the plan of God. But what I'm telling you and what he's telling you as he told them is what works for him works for us in the 21st century, us believers. That's why he shared this with them. The secret of his boldness and steadiness and calm is couched in parabolic form. The day has two halves, daylight and darkness. Obviously, if we go for a walk in the daytime, you are safe from the perils of darkness. I got the bejeeber scared out of me just before we left Naples, Aussie and my sister-in-law, Peg, went out for a walk. It's a dark night. And I figured they had some things they'd like to talk about, which they did. But I was up in the condo, 16 floors up. I was working. Minutes passed. Then a half hour passed. Then an hour passed. 
I was this far from calling the police. I had looked everywhere. My heart was going like this. It was the dark. Where the heck are they? And uh, Peg had a phone. I tried it. It didn't work. For whatever reason, we still didn't understand. It didn't work. I'd gone to the security guard. said, have you seen them? He hadn't seen them. There they were out there on that long boardwalk. And I got to thinking, somebody could have knocked them in the head. Not likely. Where are they? I wouldn't have worried had it been the daytime. It was dark. Very dark. So I was worried. Really, really worried. Bad things can happen in the dark, particularly in the world we're living in. Potholes and hazards, natural hazards and some man-made. My trip went up in the night for lack of light that are easily avoided in the daytime. Now that natural situation has a spiritual analogy that is apropos for every believer in this room, every disciple. The light of the world in the spiritual sense is God the Father. To walk in the day or to walk in the light is by analogy to choose to walk by the light of God's will, to walk by the light of God's word, to walk in his counsel, to walk by the direction of the Holy Spirit given through his word. To walk in darkness or the night is to ignore the principles and the precepts of God's word. It's to be deaf to the promptings of God's spirit and to follow the dictates of the flesh to which we are all tempted. It's to go the way of the world, to walk in darkness, to listen to the temptations of Satan, to take the way of comfort rather than the way of the cross. That's what it means to walk in darkness. To take the boulevard that leads to destruction rather than the narrow way that leads to life. In any given situation, you and I have the choice of following the counsel of God or taking the advice of the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we listen to walk in light, when we listen to the voice of God, we walk in light. And what I told you three weeks ago, nothing bad can happen. Jim, I beg to differ, Pastor. Bad things are all over the place and they happen to people all the time and they even happen to believers. I remind you, I said nothing bad can happen. By that, I didn't say nothing can hurt you. Surgery is painful but normally has a good result. Sin brings transient pleasure but it binds a person up with painful consequences. Jesus is saying he's going back to Jerusalem, to Judea, where his enemies want a piece of him because he's following the impulse, the leading of his father. Nothing bad can happen, but we may be hurt. We will never be permanently harmed. That's something it doesn't bother me to repeat again and again. When you said that three weeks ago, I'm saying it again, and I've said it before. 
You as a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, a true disciple of his, nothing bad is going to happen to you as long as you're walking in the light. You may get injured, and we often do. But ultimately, nothing bad is going to happen. No person is ever worse off for obeying God, for walking in the light. None of us is ever worse off for following the direction of His Spirit. Therein lays the secret of Jesus' boldness. He's not afraid to go back to Judea. He's moving in lockstep with the Spirit of His Father. His steadiness, His rock-like sense of security in the face of this danger, every move of Jesus was choreographed with heaven. Now, you and I are never going to get there. We're not Jesus. We're not perfect. We are flesh. And we stumble around. But you must pray as a believer. You must pray constantly that he will give you wisdom and that he will give you his light. And the best place to get that is in his word. That he'll give you that wisdom so that you will not make missteps. You know, as I get older, that'll happen one of these years. I'll be an old man. Don't laugh, you dogs. <laughs> but I realize, I realize looking at the scriptures, and I see it today just as I look at life. One of the, there are jeopardies in being a young person. There are jeopardies in being an old person because you can become an old fool. And you can do the stupidest things. You can take things for granted. And you can just fall in your, you can just fall in your face in your own vomit. So I make it my business always with energy to ask God for wisdom so that somehow, some way in this flesh, in my agedness, I will not step in it and do something that dishonors God, that dishonors the family, something that dishonors the church. If you do that, you don't need to worry. You may get dinged up. You may get your fenders bent. You may lose some money. You may lose some status. <laughs> and then as I do all the time, look in the mirror and with my brother say, what the heck happened? <laughs> All that stuff will go on. But you will never be permanently injured. You will come through it exactly where God wants you to be. Every disciple in imitation of Jesus is obliged to do everything possible, to take every precaution to speak and to act in concert with the Spirit of God and never worry about the consequences. No one can harm us or trip us up so long as we stay in the light, in the safety zone. Keep in step with the will of God and seek the will of God. Follow the principles and the prescriptions of the Word of God. Follow the promptings of His Spirit. 
that will keep us. And that's what he's telling his disciples in this to explain why he's so secured. He's so steady walking back into what I call the mouth of the lion. It will keep us from terrible blunders, costly mistakes, deadly errors that wreck lives and ruin ministries and dishonor God. John Calvin said, Therefore, whoever obeys the word of God and undertakes nothing except at God's command will also have him as leader and guide from heaven. And in this confidence, can go safely and boldly on his way. That's where we must be. I find a lot of people, young and old, see it all the time. Of course, as a pastor, you see a whole, and I'm a people watcher, see a whole spectrum of experience. But I see, I see people, people are so restless these days. Walk in the light and you won't be. So restless. Where they want to be is everywhere but where they are. You notice that? Well, my parents are getting older, so I want to go back to Timbuktu where they are. Or the parents are saying, well, I want to go and be with my kids. I saw one family years ago, probably with 10, 15 years ago, a couple, nice couple. They were in my care group. Well, they were a little lonely here in Oregon. I can understand being lonely in Oregon. But they decided they wanted to go to Denver where they had family. Well, anybody can understand that, why people would want to do that. And then when people start thinking that way, they're not honest with themselves and they make everything that might seem favorable to that position the end of the direction of God. Well, they went there and it all blew apart. Seek God's will. And don't just be restless. Decide, I want to go here. I think I'd like to live in Hawaii. You know, then go face Maui. You know, it's that kind of thing. Just cool it, chill out. And until you know God is saying go, stand still, stand down, be where you, where he's placed you. Same way with jobs. People jump around with jobs. They jump here, they jump there. Sometimes that is of God. Lots of times the Lord wants you just to endure it and let him lead you through it. Well, turns out Lazarus had passed, but not for long. At last, Jesus explains to his bewildered disciples why he was returning to Judea. He's going back for the sake of Lazarus. All this time, they thought he was just sick. Actually, he said cryptically, Lazarus is asleep. Well, they took him literally. What he tells them next catches them totally by surprise. They thought that Jesus had blown it off with calm assurance because he 
illness was one from which Lazarus was in recovering wouldn't involve taking them back there in the face of danger. So he announced his new itinerary, and he says, Men, Lazarus is asleep. Well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> it's good for sick people to sleep, to get rest. And Jesus goes on to tell them, No, Lazarus has died. Oops. That raises a question. Well, if Lazarus had died, I know why you wouldn't want to go, why, why didn't we move out? And that, of course, is what Mary and Martha were thinking. He's the dearest friend we have. He's the great physician. But Jesus is about to tell them that this whole deal is a severe mercy. They were wondering, why, why, why didn't he come when we called him? Lazarus was still very sick. And then John feels compelled to insert, just in case we get the wrong idea. Jesus loved Mary and her sister, sister and Lazarus. It's a line that seems to say, don't jump to conclusions here. So now we ponder the actions of Jesus in response to Lazarus' illness. It reminds us that sometimes we do not understand Jesus. Most people don't understand Jesus. But the people who understand him best are those who walk with him. That's what we're going to see here. And then what I told you three weeks ago, before my vacation. We're seeing that his love can often wear a deceptively cruel face. Jesus had sent back word to Mary and Martha, and his disciples were around him when he said it, that the illness of Lazarus was not a sickness unto death. In other words, he's saying, this is not it for him. But it's an illness custom designed for the glory of God to showcase God's glory. Lazarus did, in fact, die temporarily. Only when they experienced his disciples, his work at the grave of Lazarus, were the disciples able to fully decode his meaning. The word of God is always more clearly and rightly understood within the framework of our Christian experience than standing outside of it. The word of God is best understood by those who have experienced it. For example, John 14, 8, 14, 18. Do you remember what it says? Probably not, just offhand. For example, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. Many of you in this room have been in a popular phrase, and some of you possibly still are, just experienced a lot of bitterness and a lot of hell. And yet Jesus says to you, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. 
yet we know exactly what that means. may seem a contradiction, but standing inside our Christian experience, we understand that. We get it. And so it is, many things Jesus says sometimes aren't understood by outsiders. Secondly, we see that cruel face. Jesus loved them. So why in the world didn't he get on his horse and get over there? Because it was a setup. It was a setup. It was a platform to, to display the glory of God. You know, many of the things that you're going through, many of the things that I'm going through, they are just that. They are not what they seem to be to the naked eye, to your naked eye. Somebody here might be on the verge of going broke. Somebody here may be on the cusp of a very threatening health crisis. Somebody here may be facing a marriage about to shipwreck. Somebody here may have a child who's desperately ill or challenged in some way and you hardly know what to do or don't know what to do, flat out. You've prayed like the sisters you've sent across the Jordan and told the Lord about it, the Lord who loves you, and he doesn't come running. Not, at least not as you expected. And you're disappointed as Mary and Martha were and they saw their brother literally die. But what you don't know is the background in the mind of the Lord, in the mind of God, that there's something in all of this. This is designer pain. And there's something there that he's going to use as a platform for his glory. And it was interesting, I mentioned our vacation, to sit and talk to my sister-in-law. Of course, I lost my brother two or three years ago. But through it all, Peg has come to know Jesus. I can't point you to one specific thing and I think my brother did right at the end. These things, all the terrible stuff that went through, in the end, is, is, remember that song, it shall be worth it all? It's worth it all when we consider God's outcomes. I've written a whole book about that, Polishing God's Monuments. They're platforms for God to show his glory. Jesus says this deal with Lazarus, guys. This is a platform from which the Father is going to launch his glory. And you and I have always got to take that into account. We as believers have had enough experience with the Lord to get an understanding of what that means. And it's so delicious. That's the word for it. It's just so delicious when we see God work out his plan. And it's for his glory. 
we had never thought through all of that pain, through all of that confusion, that we would see in the end the glory of God. If you know him, I didn't say if you're just a formal kind of Christian. You know, if you're not just one of these conventional cultural Christians. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and true-hearted faith, nothing, a lot of things will hurt you, but nothing's going to ultimately harm you. And everything that is going into the fabric of your experience is intended to glorify God. He wants you to see it. But you've got to give him a chance. You've got to submit to his will. You've got to seek his will. You've got to respect his will. You've got to respect his word. Some people just won't do that. But you will see the glory of God. I'm old enough to say that. You will see it. The scriptures will tell you that. So Jesus expresses his delight when the Father sets the table for him. He does not regret that he's not at Lazarus' bedside when all this goes down. He's saying, this is good for you. And sometimes he's not at your bedside or he's not in your experience. I mean, he's not where you can see him, feel him, touch him. He's not there. He seems far away. But heaven is setting the table for God to display his glory. So much in life is like that. If everything were hunky-dory, if everything were smooth as silk, we would never grow. Do you notice the struggle in birth, animals and things like that? You notice little creatures have to struggle to break the egg to get out? I mean, they have to grow in strength, so there's some struggle. Can you think of one living thing? I can't think of every living thing, but can you think of one living thing that you know of that grows without struggle? Think about that. I don't know of a thing that grows, increases in strength without struggle. That's true in just about every dimension of life. And so it is in the spiritual life. So they had to struggle. The sisters had to struggle. Lazarus, of course, there was a struggle in him and dying. It's the way it all is. Jesus says the timing is right. There's always God's timing, just like there was timing for Jesus to die. He was not going to die on the cross a minute before or a minute after. He was going to die in God's timing right at that moment. So it is with us. Well, the character of Jesus' disciples never changes. Our loyalty to the grace of God always seems to run out in front of our understanding. Most of us are a lot bigger on talk than walk. I'll tell you what I do in these situations. That's the reason some of you at least have heard me say, I'm ready to die for Christ. I want to be ready to die for Christ. But as I look inside, I see a chicken down there. And if there's a fire there and they're running to throw me in it, I hope I'm up to it. 
by the grace of God, if it's time to die, I will be. But sometimes our talk is cheap. We credit ourselves with, with more courage and more faith than we really have. So when Jesus says, let's go, break camp, and then there's Thomas who's ready to go, but he doesn't have much confidence that this is really for the glory of God. Okay, okay, he insists. This is the Lord's will. Let's be Spartans. Go die with him. Well, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Without the enabling grace of God, and you and I need to ask for it constantly, it's easy to talk the Christian life. But when push comes to shove, it's easy to bail out of our good intentions. You remember Thomas said, well, let's go die with him. He insists. What happened to these guys when they actually arrested Jesus? Folks, it wasn't just Peter. They all took a hike. Every last one of them. Their courage was not as big as advertised. Mary's first words to Jesus were words of disappointment that he wasn't there because she knew he could have done something, but also words of relief because she knew he would do something. So she was a little conflicted, but she was so glad that he was there. Lots of times we're going to be conflicted. We're going to wonder why the Lord didn't do this at this time and didn't do that. I've been there many times. You've been there many times, anybody here? Then there are many times you wonder why the Lord didn't do this, why he didn't do that. While I was in Naples, I had an opportunity. One was on the airplane. I don't know why it came up. can't remember. I was telling about those years. Some of you have heard this before, but not in this context. I, in college, starting with my sophomore year, I did everything in my power to create a resume that would win me a Fulbright scholarship. I did it. I exceeded the standard. It's a lock. It was a lock. And then when it came to the end of the year, Ossie and I were married, just been married before the school year started. Everything was strangely quiet. And she uh, hid from me for a week, the letter that told me I didn't get it. Three years, three years, I had exceeded the standards of the others that the college had gotten up before. I was broken. I was broken. And I was in this church maybe three years before I could ever say any of this without crying. hurt all those years. Why did the Lord, why did he remain on the other side of Jordan? Why did he let this happen to me? I had worked so hard, done so much, and then it didn't happen. 
my head of my department had an inside track. They weren't supposed to learn these things, but they he learned because he inquired. He couldn't understand it. I learned from the committee that it was because I'd gotten married early. <laughs> well, Aussie had twisted my arm and made me marry her when she was 19 years old. <laughs> I didn't have any choice. I was just 20. And there was a big push on in those days about early marriages. You may not realize that, but it was a big thing. So they said, they suspected at that early marriage that it was emotional instability. <laughs> you idiots. You know, I was so bad. But in my maturity, if it's happened yet, in my maturity, I look back and I told one, at least one person, they were probably right. <laughs> it was probably the Lord with multi-purposes doing things that were good. They were good that needed to be done. And probably Aussie and I were maybe saved from some kind of marital crisis. They were probably right, the providence of God. You may get hurt. My golly, was I hurt. Never harmed. It was all for the good. For the good. And that's what God will do in your life. Let's praise him. Let's thank him. And if you don't know him, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, I welcome you to a Savior who promises you life and that more abundantly. What have you got to do? You just have to believe him. You just have to trust him. Trust the one who came to give up his life in order that his atoning blood would cover all of our miserable sins and all of our brokenness. And leave it to him. He will give you life and that more abundantly. Trust him. All your sins will be forgiven. You will be fully pardoned. So that's his invitation to you through me. As communion said, he came to redeem us from our sins. That's our biggest problem in this human race. So accept his gracious offer. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the atoning sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that your spirit may draw men and women who don't know him into his saving arms and may give them life and that more abundantly. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.